Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I just received my COVID-19 booster. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I think vaccine mandates are the responsibility of the government. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturdays discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking original white ale from the Who Garden Brewery. Uh, so this is the next step in our education related to wheat beers. This one comes out a little, uh, it's a little lighter than I remember last month's. I know Aaron appreciates when we comment on the color. Uh, I like the initial smells. What are we doing today, Mr. Ralph? All learning is brain-based which means taking care of our brain is part of a good education. We read a scoping review to look at some examples of how healthy habits can impact learning, motivation, and mental wellness. Later, we read a study that compared the efficacy of student argumentation when approached collaboratively or adversarially. The results suggest there are specific benefits to helping students argue in parallel. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read A Flourishing Brain in the 21st Century, a scoping review of the impact of developing good habits for mind, brain, well-being, and learning. This was written by Rolf Ekman, Anna Fletcher, Joanna Giotta, Axel Erickson, Bertil Thomas, and Frederick Bothy. This was published in Mind, Brain, and Education, and we read an early view because it is not yet assigned to an issue. Uh, why did I cue this paper? I was getting my feet. I was doing cold fill because I, I, I hadn't prepped anything. And, uh, and I found that it was a review. I didn't know anything about scoping reviews. That was something that was a new like methodology to me. Uh, and so I got a chance to look into what scoping reviews are. It was super fresh and, um, developing good habits was an interesting, like hook for me, like um, the actionability of habits. You know, we've talked about mental health on here, you know, several times recently. And so, um, connecting habits that supports, uh, you know, cognitive well-being, both for productivity and wellness, was compelling to me, and so I wanted to see what this kind of actionability material. If might you are a teacher about. looking to have or construct or emphasize a mental health curriculum that you personally uh, endorse in your classroom, uh, you know what? There are lots of things in this that are good starting points for things uh, adolescents can use guidance and instruction with. There are habits here that contribute to positive mental health that our students need to know about. The the nature of a scoping review that I did a little bit of background on, and, and you can find even a couple of references in our show notes, um, is different from like a systematic review in that it's a little more freeform and intended to just explore what does current literature say about something that's important. And we're not trying to catch everything and we're not trying to estimate an effect size. And we're not like, it's just, we're just trying to figure out what it says. We're just, here's the scope of what we're curious about. What's the state of the research on this stuff? And that's a very reasonable methodology. And they were very clear about that being their methodology here, which is great. So like, the, from the review methodology standpoint, it's not my favorite, but they were super clear about it, and that's fine. Like That's all I think we can ask of anybody. The beginning of their methodology was they started with these habits of mind and said, this list of whatever it is, what, 10 or 12 habits that we think are good, what does brain science and research say about these habits 
for their positive impacts, especially in teaching and learning settings. And that's also a very reasonable thing to look into from a review standpoint, but that's it's important to understand that those habits were not the outcomes from reading research from brain science. It was, these are the habits we're interested in. What does brain science research say about the impacts of these habits? And that distinction is important because a few of these sections were a little shorter than others. That's true. And a few of these sections had a couple fewer citations in them. And that means something also. And so um, if these are habits that you're interested in or these are habits that you um, think you might want to implement, that's great. It would be worth taking the scoping review and then doing a more intentional, maybe systematic review of what does the body of research say about different ways to target these habits. And so that that distinction about the methodology was important for me because I know I at least initially misunderstood where these habits sat in the methodology. These were the beginnings. They said, if you're these habits we think are valuable, what does brain science say about these habits? So what kinds of habits are we talking about? A lot of these are lifestyle habits. A lot of these uh, come down to lifestyle habits, uh, an individual's relationship to food and nutrition, or li- a relig- an individual's relationship to exercise, an in individual's relationship to social interactions, an individual's relationship to sleep. Uh, so, so a lot of these are regular, daily, interactive habits that contribute to an individual's brain functioning and development. And I really, one of the things that that I liked about this um, this framing for the study, that's something that resonates with me, and I think you also, is we we like to talk about brain structures. We like to talk about you know signaling molecules. We like to talk about hormone levels, just because of our shared biology background. We think that's cool and interesting. Uh, and so um, from that standpoint, how these habits impact you know brain development, how they impact hormone levels over time and how those hormone levels can impact cognitive processes like long-term storage and retrieval, I think is a really valuable lens to put over this because we are all doing brain-based learning. Like you don't get to opt out of it. That's where learning happens. And so the framing of this review within the context of what do we know about brains now? Because we know a lot more about brains now than we did 20 years ago. So framing it within brain function, and um, they talked about the immune system a couple of times. I think a lot about um, the endocrine system a lot. The Putting it within that biological context, I think, is useful to recognize when we have a responsibility to, to do something that fosters these healthy habits for students. Uh, because they are biological beings, and we have to recognize that truth to be able to work with them productively. Yeah, they they had some like direct statements, like um, your brain needs glucose for energy, but you can get that energy from uh, more complex carbohydrates instead of simple carbohydrates, which have a consequential uh, volatility to your blood sugar levels. So complex carbohydrates, superior brain food then, simple carbohydrates. Uh, they talk about antioxidants and polyphenols, which I don't know anything about polyphenols, but they talk to them in, in um, fruit and vegetables to have positive impact on hippocampus functioning. And the hippocampus is the part of your brain that decides what information is going to be stored and retrieved, which is essential for learning. It's basically its job. And I even started to see some connections The you know, the list is in the paper uh, and it's long enough that it really doesn't make sense to read all at once. Uh, but I connected the right after the nutrition entry was an exercise entry, the role of exercise and what what connections they could make between this exercise habit and positive brain outcomes. And one of the things they found was that exercise can be a good um, buffer but against the impacts of poor diet. 
I don't know how much control over nutrition in schools individual teachers have. Well, this isn't about us controlling their exercising. It's not about controlling their nutrition. These are things we can teach them to help them improve their learning and mental health. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so especially, you know, within the context of like our disciplinary work, you know, if I'm teaching, you know, I taught science, right, for a number of years. And so when we talk about cell signaling, when we talk about metabolism, it's an opportunity to include some of those discussions within the context of health and wellness. So that while we're still talking about some of those topics that are relevant to my biology curriculum, we can also be equipping them to understand how to have control over elements of their lives that can set them up for success for students who are looking to be able to have an impact on on their progress. And we can do the same thing, I think, in a lot of disciplines when you talk about social studies and you want to look at um, the the implications of differential access to healthy eating options between communities and the inherent element of justice that we need to consider when we look at food costs, when we look at transportation costs, when we look at availability, especially over time, um, that's a conversation that we can have. When we look at you know, class strife in history, we can talk about food access and the fundamental implications of those in dominant positions withholding access to some of the better food choices and what that can mean long-term for communities who are marginalized and oppressed by those mechanisms. And so you can target social studies content that also includes discussion of some of these habits that have implications today. The next, uh, the next entry on this list is optimism. I am not known for being the most optimistic individual in my life. One of the things in their review of the literature was the role of um, especially uh, chronic or long-term states uh, or ways of thinking and the role of if uh, long-term negativity and the increase the associated increases in things like cortisol and then the damaging effects of long-term persistent high levels of cortisol yeah. and I was like oh that's me that's that's a habit that I can learn from right now well I'm glad that you're able to find something valuable to you, but if we go back to the social studies discussion, if you have an oppressed community that is consistently oppressed, <coughs> individuals will have more negative or threatening thoughts because of the social climate that they're involved in, which will also have cortisol consequence on their on the functioning of their hippocampus. So think about this from an individual physiological level. We can think about this from a student uh, functioning level. We can think of it at a societal level. Uh, what I did not know, what I did not know, because I knew that negative and self-threatening thoughts produce cortisol, I did not know that optimistic thoughts produce the levels of oxytocin. I did not know that. Uh, and that makes me feel great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, so I made an entry here because like this is an area for me for personal improvement is I can improve my habit of um, managing how much I indulge like casually negative thinking, right? Like there are some things I think are a problem and I'm going to spend time and energy addressing them. But there are things that like I'm just in the habit of casually being like, things are terrible. And I'm like, you know what? I cannot be that way. I can choose to not be that. I can choose to not indulge that way of thinking. And so I want to give a shout out uh, to Gertie Panhair uh, of the Yukon. He's a Twitter he's a uh, Twitter content creator with a pretty big following. And he is 100% about focusing on promoting positivity through dance. And it's amazing. And when I when I came across his videos a while, a while back, I started following him because he is exactly the kind of content creator who puts material in my life that reminds me to be intentional about being positive and that's cool and i think everybody should follow him 
because we've been doing a lot of mindfulness meditation in my classroom on my mental health Mondays. We do five minutes of mindfulness meditation uh, every Monday. And the idea is to like choose a focus. And when your mind wanders, you know, bring yourself back to that focus. Well, you, once you've trained that ability, you can, you can put a little kind of like a, kind of like a flag in your thinking for um, unproductive negativity. And so when you're just being pessimistic because you liked the nostalgia of watching Daria on MTV and you also want to complain like she did, you can actually say, wait, I'm just complaining for the sake of complaining. Let me find something actually good or optimistic that I feel. Optimism uh, paired with mindfulness can become a new habit to make optimism a regular habit of thought. And then we can model that. We can even narrate that process like uh, with students in our classrooms, because again, that's something that I have to work on, especially, you know, the, um, like the affirmations and the providing positive feedback, you know, cause I can be so focused on revision. And so sharing with them, like, Hey, I, like, I know I've been grumping the first 20 minutes of this class because I'm, you know, I am, and you know what, I'm catching myself. I'm going to make a change. And so let's, let's focus. I'm really happy to be here with everybody. I'm going to like, let's, let's refocus and like sharing some of that and modeling some of those behaviors is, can be a really effective way to equip students to do similar things. Um, Cause modeling is a powerful way to instruct and to teach. Uh, and so the, the last thing just for this, just there is a difference between choosing positivity and attempt and working to foster optimism and, you know, that false toxic, culture of positivity that can also come out in edgy circles. And that's not what we're talking about. We're mindful of that distinction. So when there are problems, we're going to talk about them. And I hope that you hear that happen on this show fairly regularly. And so um, there's a difference between resisting the discussion of problems that are urgent and require discussion and falling into a trap of just languishing negativity. There's a distinction between the two. Each of us has to walk that balance. Uh, And we just encourage everyone to go back to your call for mindfulness, right? Choose choose when and where um, to focus on improvement and when to choose to be positive. There's a couple entries in this list that really made me feel good because they're basically carbon. They're like copy and paste right out of self-determination theory is Uh, definitely the capacity to make autonomous decisions give. And so as a teacher, give your kids opportunities to make decisions. And something that I thought was interesting that I highlighted as an actual, as a takeaway from their review that I did not know before is there was a line in there uh, in the autonomy section about um, some, some recent evidence pointing to a distinction between the development of impulse control and some of that executive functioning and um, a responsiveness to reward structures uh, and that they are different things. Uh, and I thought that that was really interesting because I didn't understand that before I read this paper. Like I could point to that as new learning here. And so when, when you're seeing, uh, if, if I see students in my classroom and I see them making a choice that I didn't want them to make, that I think is unproductive, uh, that it's really important for me to examine the scenario in that moment and decide, are they just satisfying impulses? Are they just struggling with executive function? Or are they responding to an incentive structure that I've created either intentionally or accidentally uh, because they are hyper-responsive is the word that's in the paper. They are hyper-responsive to reward structures in adolescence. So they're going to notice our incentive structures very quickly and respond to them. And it can be very easy to misunderstand a student choice that we think is unproductive as being just 
struggles with impulse control when in fact they are just correctly reading the scenario and responding to the incentives we provide. And so that's something that we can reflect on as teachers. And um, when we notice that they're actually responding to, to reward structures, those structures are things we can change. And that's great. Repetition was an interesting entry on this list, I felt. Um, it was interesting uh, that repeated exposure to stimuli re- reduces cortisol release associated with that stimuli. So we can get used to scare things that are initially scary, we can get used to so that they're not so scary anymore. That's interesting. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I don't, I haven't prepared comments about this statement because I think there's a lot for me to think about in that statement. Um, I think that I've been inadvertently leveraging some of that because of some of my classroom practices, because of how I like to structure our classroom activities. But I think there's more that I can do. Like, how do you convince them to face the scary challenge and then face the scary challenge again and then face the scary challenge again and face the scary challenge again until they get it to a point where it's not it's not scary enough to stress their mind anymore? Because if that cortisol from that stress is stunning their hippocampus every time they come in, they're not going to be gaining a lot of growth or prop progress uh in those instructional pieces yeah this is actually a spot where i think understanding that their their list of habits was an a priori list actually really matters because there's a there's a quip that i that i trot out every you know every so often but pretty regularly that uh, anything can become normal yeah and that is sometimes encouragement and sometimes horrifying. Yeah. Uh, and so um, that's a spot where I think I'd like to know more about how they decided to define the construct of repetition and why they decided to include it in this list prior to starting this scoping review. Uh, because I actually highlighted the very last se- sentence in this section because it's pretty good. It, it references the importance of spaced repetition, which I think both you and I leverage yeah. in our classrooms. Yeah, and that's a powerful, powerful thing. If we come back and repeat something after after a period of dormancy or where we, you know, air quotes, move on, that is a really powerful um, retrieval practice technique yeah. to reinforce the importance of that, you know, of those elements of their schema and make some really robust learning. I love it. But there are some elements, you know, I need to go back and like read the cited papers in this section to fully understand what they're describing. But like repeated exposure to a stimulus leads to faster responses. And I imagine like multiplication tables. And I I think that's terrible. Like, I, yeah, we can get faster at saying things on command, but we're not in Pavlov's lab anymore. Like right. that's, not some, that's not my goal. Like that's not what we should be doing. And so I think that the unpacking what we mean by repetition, what kinds of benefits are actually accrued that you really can't do justice in one paragraph, which is how long this section is. Uh, and so, so I feel some kind of way about this. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel a way as well about repetition, repetition. Like there's not much more here than repetition is a thing that has consequences. This is a spot where the inadequacy of the method really, I feel like expresses itself and they're, you know, I got to put it, I'm just going to put it on tape. I don't know that it's going to stay, but like, I also, I, I put in the show notes, another link to a, a recent paper discussing the, the, the biases in Google Scholar algorithms, which in their methodology, they're only, they only considered the top results 
from their Google Scholar searches, which then necessarily means that what's included here is biased. And they, they, they acknowledge that it's not exhaustive, but to be a sampling of papers is, doesn't actually comment on whether that sampling is biased or not. Uh, and so I just, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I, I felt, I felt wanting in this area in particular, probably because of my pre-existing biases. Well, what are you going to school for, Ralph? What are you going to doctorate in? Yeah, educational psychology. Okay, so you can have perspectives about how studies are done. That's okay. They were optimistic about how this was going to turn out. And they were curious to see what they would find. Yeah, curiosity was in there. I enjoyed the curiosity section. I actually did too. Like, it's pretty brief. Um, but lean into curiosity because learning more uh, releases low levels of dopamine. Uh, that reinforces one of my practices, a hallmark, that if a student starts asking, quote, off-topic questions that they're genuinely into, and it feels like they're, like, shaking me off of, quote, the goal of the day, uh, no, that's not. Their questions are the goal of the day. If they are honest questions that they are genuinely curiously into and a student asks and then three or four other students perk up because they're like, yeah, that's interesting. I want to know that. Deliver. Feed them. Feed them. Indulge that curiosity. Let them take you. Let. It also gives them a sense of power because they are making some autonomous decisions that matter in the classroom. They're choosing to ask questions. You are respecting their autonomy to do so. You are feeding their curiosity, and you're building a relationship with them. You're having social, positive social interactions where you are exchanging with them as individuals. They feel like they belong in that classroom. They will give you more of their attention in the future for the stuff that you put on the docket if you give them attention for the things they want to put on the docket. That Feed their curiosity. Lean into their curiosity. I think it's very valuable as a teacher. So I like seeing that too. too. Very brief, but yep, valuable. Listen, plan, and play. For our second segment, we read... Presetting stances for students during collaborative argumentation, parallel thinking versus adversarial thinking. This was written by Xian Yang, Guaqin Zhao, Zhao Mei Yan, Xing Chao, Xiao Yu Zhao, Tong Lu, and Yunnan Dong. This was published in Research and Science Education in 2021. I watch Research and Science Education pretty consistently as far as when stuff comes out. And the like the idea of argumentation, I think, is a powerful tool. It's something that is literally and explicitly in the next generation science standards. And it so is important for anybody with an investment in STEM education to have an eye on. And they're like really concrete application of like, let's look at the ways we do argumentation, which I think we need more of in the field um, of like pragmatic actionable. Um, I think this was, I don't remember if this was quasi-experimental or experimental, but like uh, a functional look. Yeah. A quasi-experimental look at differences. And that just, it screamed relevant. I, w- I was pretty excited to read this one. Uh, I liked it because it kind of, to some extent, um, pairs well 
with a paper we read in the past about collaborative versus destructive competition. And that when you're constructing arguments, uh, if you work together to take turns looking at different perspectives, that's different than I am this, you are that, let's fight. This says there are consequences to those choices when you're constructing assignments in your classroom and how you're going to proceed and discuss these arguments. And I appreciated being able to like harken back to that to see how it works in this context. And argumentation is good because it's so highly relevant to science instruction, which definitely matters for both of us. But argumentation, I think more broadly, is really applicable across any any discipline and I think even any grade level, um, helping students better articulate their ways of thinking, formalize like their justifications for the way they think is something that is going to be directly applicable in the ways they are assessed and the ways they're asked to grow, the ways they're asked to implement their skills in a variety of settings. So this is, I think, even though it's going to have some focus in science education, is not limited to science. Argumentation is something that pops up everywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so sort of an outstanding question with NGSS has been around for a number of years and and we've I would imagine many teachers who are in NGSS states or states that have standards that look a lot like them um, recognize that argumentation is our responsibility in classrooms. However, there's a lot less literature and support and professional development and whatever related to how. How do we help students go about getting better at argumentation? I can prompt them to argue with one another. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a productive argument. Right? And, and I think that that's kind of um, one of the th- – I mean I guess I'm jumping ahead. Am I, am I allowed to jump ahead? Um, the takeaway is here don't have them argue with each other. Uh, help, uh, like ask them to develop an argument. Uh, work together to develop an argument. Consider – you know, consider uh, – if we were making an argument for this, what would we say? If we were making an argument for that, what we would say? Compare those arguments to each other. Improve your arguments uh, is different than you argue this and you argue that and let's go. Wait, it's not not make an argument. It's make some arguments. Yes. Work together to systematically make your way to different points of view. Yeah. And that's all being prompted and structured by the teacher. So that you can work together to construct the best version of each of these positions and then together evaluate all of those arguments to arrive at some sort of decision or judgment. Uh, but I think a, a powerful element of this, and this uh, does harken back to some other, other literature, is in that collaborative means you're going to notice nobody is taking on the identity of any one argument right. and nobody is, is attacking somebody else who holds any argument, whether it was assigned or they actually genuinely hold it. But we are working together. Let's make this the best it can be. Okay, now we're going to all move to this argument. What's the best version of this that it could be? And one of the things that was in their uh, early setup that I thought that resonated with me was that parallel arguments, which is the term that they assigned to that kind of a structure, does not mean there won't be conflict. Right. The improvement of each of those arguments is how they respond and resolve those conflicts. Recognizing that the conflict comes from this argument having a position where this is a higher priority value and that argument having a position where that is a higher priority value recognizes uh, 
the role of those value structures in the arguments. This parallel argument construction methodology, they don't say it anywhere in here, but I would argue is humanizing argumentation because it's not they believe this. It is to believe this, these are what you need to understand and this is what you need to value. And, and, and to have this position, this is what you need to understand and this is what you need to value. So it actually increases the understanding of humans, of other humans, uh, hum one human's understanding of other humans by doing this parallel argumentation procedure or, or, or frame. Uh, and I thought that was fabulous. I have been doing a soft version of this that I didn't know that I was doing when I teach my climate change, my unit, my climate change unit, which I'm about to start with my kids this year. And that is, I frame it as a lot of people don't understand a scientist's perspective on climate change. So I want to show you the data that they have collected so that you can understand how they got to their position. And that's kind of a soft version of this parallel argument because I also discuss what are the, con like, why, why would these conclusions make some people uncomfortable? Why would these conclusions be problematic for others? I actually put in sort of like a sympathetic business perspective and an industry perspective in my climate change so that we understand how there's a lot of tension in the social sphere about these issues because there are multiple perspectives and multiple priorities. Uh, and I, and I, I think that that matters. And this, this paper has, uh, helped me see where I can improve doing that in the future. And I feel really great about that. So for their particular study, they looked at two classes of, uh, about 40 some students in each of these two classes. And they, in one class gave them an opportunity to engage in a learning experience built around this sort of collaborative parallel argumentation framework. And in the other class, they asked them to engage in adversarial argumentation. And then they, uh, they looked at how their, how, what did their arguments look like after it was like four weeks of instruction. And then they gave them a survey to ask them how, what did they think about it? Those sorts of things. Uh, and then they, they looked at the differences between these two groups. Uh, to say, are there what are the values to parallel argumentation? What are the values to to adversarial argumentation? Uh, you know, if we're here to talk about critiques, I'll talk about them. I don't know how much of this is going to be airworthy, but there there are considerations that I have. Uh, I first of all, I don't. Um, I like the conclusion, so I don't want to like throw them under the bus. I don't want to do that. I'm interested in the fact that this is in. This is, these are in Beijing, China. These, all of these students are in Beijing, China. So the non-adversarial, we are all on the same side doing everything together, looking at it together perspective wins is consistent with their cultural zeitgeist. I thought about that as I read this paper uh, because science is done in a social context, always is. Uh, we submit our work to a global scale for, I guess, these kinds of considerations. Would it look the same in the United States? If we were created this in the, in the United States, would it look the same? Well, what's interesting, my top critique is I think I just predict, right? I don't have access to their data, but if I'm just eyeballing the, like they provide pretty good summary statistics. They're, they're really clear about the tools they use 
and the findings from those tools. So I can eyeball what I think other analyses would do just because they were definitely, to their credit, super clear, super precise about what they did and their findings from a statistical standpoint. Uh, but the, uh, I don't actually, I'm just eyeballing this. The differences between parallel and adversarial are not very big. Uh, and I'm not even convinced that they're necessarily real. They might not be significant if you did. They might not be reproducible. Ooh. Like they might be, they, the differences might be trivial. And so if you were to do this 10 times, you might get adversarial, you know, air quotes wins three times. I'm not sure that you would see these same patterns of significance if you were to do it again. I'm just not sure, right? I don't know. I'm just not sure. They declared that parallel argumentation did not produce a significant difference. And yet for their man Whitney U calculation, they calculated a difference. Is there a difference or not? Right. I just, I wonder, I, I, I expected adversarial um, discussions to be like way worse and they're not, they're not way worse. They, you saw improvement across four of the five categories, yeah, yeah, exactly. just like in parallel only got four of five for improvements. Maybe that's real. Maybe like there are actual pros and cons to adversarial argumentation versus parallel argumentation. Maybe there, maybe there are, I don't know. I wonder, I wonder what this would look like if we were to replicate it. Well, and so, so I noticed in their findings that there was measurable gains in both techniques. I say this as somebody who advocates for parallel argumentation and deeply loves adversarial argumentation, that there seems to be some spots where adversarial saw gains that parallel did not, that overall parallel seems to outperform adversarial. Yeah. And that all of this happens in one study with about 85 students. Uh, one more thing that I want to point out, and they didn't talk about this a lot in the analysis that I saw. I was reading this very quickly. But there's one more thing I want to point out, and it was in their graphs looking at the complexity, like the sophistication of the arguments that they created. And this was done by, um, by like Raider judgment after the fact, by researcher judgment after the fact. And I did notice just eyeballing it, right? I didn't, need, I didn't run any calculations, but just eyeballing it. It looks like the parallel group produced substantially more sophisticated arguments after their training compared to the argumentative group. And that, I think, is actually the potential for the most interesting finding in all of this. Greatest growth. Is that if I'm in an adversarial setting, it's entirely plausible that I just need to do as much as I need to do to win. And so I don't actually have any incentive to continue increasing the sophistication of my argument beyond whatever's better than my adversary. Whereas in the collaborative group, there's always incentive to continue improving the sophistication of your argument. And I think that shows up in their data just based on my eyeballing it. I think it's interesting that the adversarial condition did so well, in, especially in light of that critique. And I'd be very curious to see like in the individualistic society that we live in here in the United States, I'd be curious to see if the, maybe there's a greater distinction like between different argumentation topics and whether parallel versus adversarial is successful or, or maybe, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but like in light, if there is any sort of preference for, for unity, I didn't feel like unity was particularly strongly prior, like, like ad, advantaged in these data. Well, maybe, well, see, it seemed like the data is ambiguous. Unity wins. It was the call that they uh, made. 
that's what I read, is that, hey, there's some give and take here, but unity wins. That's fair. That's what I meant. Yeah, that's... that's, that's I guess it didn't come out in my discussion, but unity wins ties. So unity wins. Am I surprised? No. I like that conclusion. Feels good to me. Uh, and I think that's a fair read of the paper. There's a lot of ambiguity in the data. So, two papers we are not super statistically excited about this week, but emotionally valent and excited about instead. We're in this together. There's a there's a reference in that um, in that second paper to the six thinking hats. Is that something you knew anything about? No, nope, I didn't pursue it either. I looked it up because I was curious. Um, the six thinking hats is like a it's based on a book, uh, and it's um, a mechan it's a teaching like framework uh, to assign different ways of thinking through a problem that emphasize different components of like problem solving or debate or discussion, you know, however you want to operationalize that. Good old and, lenses. Yeah. And so there are six hats is the way this thinks about, thinks about it. So there are six hats and they are different. There are six different, you know, priorities, six different ways of thinking about it. Uh, and that was interesting to me because the, um, the formalized way of trying to systematize thinking differently really appeals to me because I think that that's something that um, students are sorely in need of. You know, we get so fond of, I say we, I'm definitely including myself in this. We get so fond of our particular heuristics for how we win arguments Our our, you know, I know a lot about brain structure. So every problem I can just, if I can just get it back to brain structure, I'm going to win that problem. I'm going to, I'm going to solve that problem. Or I'm going to, you know, meet my contribution or whatever. And so this, this hats was a nice way to, try to disrupt that a little bit and we can all move together through different ways of thinking. And I really like that. Um, but man, the, they're colored hats and there are some like, why, why do they have to be that way? Why is the white hat is a neutral way of thinking. Just think about facts hat. And I was like, man, that is some whiteness right there. Like that is why, why, there are so many other ways to accomplish that same goal. Like focus on observations. Like we don't want to suggest there's neutrality. And then to associate that with whiteness in particular is some freaking whiteness. Like that is whiteness. Well, what's interesting <clears throat> is the, um, they have titles. Now that I'm talking this, the conductors have the creative have the hat for the heart. They have titles and using different shades of color is not uh, accessible from a uh, disability perspective. So they should have different shapes. So the fact that they have a creative hat and a conductor's hat and a hat for the heart, but they're all the same shape is a problem. And what's the, but what's the, the publication date on that? Is It's it's fairly old. You know, I want to say like 90s maybe. Sure. I, know, I, linked to it in the sh I linked to it in the show notes also if this for some weird reason actually makes tape. Yeah, 90, no, 85, 85. Uh, so um, not as an excuse, but as an explanation um, for that. And so, or like um, the black hat is for negativity, Risk focus assessment. on, on uh, focus on all the problems and the, and like associating black with badness is again, another unnecessary, like 
I feel that should be red anyway. I don't think that the, I'm sure the author would like get defensive about like, I wasn't trying to racialize this, but like, are you sure? Like, are you sure you're just not being intentionally sure. ignorant of some racial undertones to all this? Like it's so foreseeably adding judgment to whiteness and blackness is such a fundamental tenet of white supremacy that that's too bad. Assessment. And the and the and the link here was like or no the 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 current popular uh, product link is like you would definitely change the colors yeah change the colors the colors are there might be definitely some reasons that you would want to not use these colors or they might be problematic in your context whatever definitely change the colors sure 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 change the colors I'm like why don't you change the colors just remove the colors call them the conductor hat we're gonna put on our conductor hat and think about this problem from yeah the there are all sorts of ways to solve this problem we're gonna put on our emotional hat it'd be easy this. it'd be really easy to just make that not a problem at all yeah it'd be really easy just remove the colors too bad So how was the beer? Uh, it's interesting. The first the first taste of the beer, it was so like aromatic. So I'm gonna say floral. Uh, and I was like, oh, that might be too much for me. That might be that. Might, I don't know that I want to drink flowers all afternoon. Um, but after the first drink or two, and I kind of I'm gonna say acclimated or whatever. Uh, then I got to a place where I'm really enjoying it. I drank that first one really quickly, uh, and because it's clean, there's not much of an aftertaste. Uh, but it's more complex on the front end than I feel like our other one was. Yeah. Um, and so this is like, this is the spot where I'd want to be. I like the start and I don't like the middle and I do like the end. I like, I do like the, uh, there's a sweetness early. I hear what you're saying with floral. It's like a soft flavor. See, that's funny because that's one of the flavors I do like. I don't like that. I have to get past the beginning so I can enjoy the middle and the end. And then I do like the end because it feels like it's like, I don't know, it feels like it's bubbling away. Like it's just. That does it for another month. We appreciate you all tuning in. There's so many things we can be doing with our time right now. This has been a heck of a year. Uh, we hope that you have a pleasant break uh, if and when the break comes to you. Um, do whatever it is that makes sense for you. Work or don't work. Spend time with family. Spend time at homes. But we know that the time for rest is important. We hope that this podcast can be an opportunity for you to relax uh, and join a conversation that is professional, but also personal and pleasant. So we'll see you next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research and struggle well.